1: we go episode 548 of the Al Galdi podcast it is Wednesday April 12th 2023 the day after a most interesting trade in the NFL was agreed on the Detroit Lions are trading corner Jeff Okuda to the Atlanta Falcons for a fifth round pick In the 2023 NFL Draft, the Lions took Okuda, a corner out of Ohio State, with the number three pick in the 2020 draft. The Redskins, of course, took Chase Young, an edge defender out of Ohio State, with the number two pick in the 2020 draft. Uh, Neither Buckeye (laughs) has had the NFL career That he has wanted to have so far. The Skins, in case you haven't heard, now are known as the Commanders. The Commanders have until May 1st to exercise the fifth year option in Chase Young's rookie contract. The option is for $17.452 million. Uh, The team potentially trading Chase has come up. Although, to me, now is not the time to trade Chase. The team would be trading him at a low value point. But, geez, a fifth round pick. That is all that the Lions are getting for Jeff Okuda makes you wonder what would the Commanders get in a trade of Chase Young this offseason. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Goldie podcast. Speaking of player value, uh, we next segment are going to have the Bijan Robinson conversation. Yes, it is time to have that conversation Bijan Robinson the running back out of Texas one of the most hyped running backs for an NFL draft in years uh there are those who want the commanders to take Bijan Robinson with their number 16 overall pick in the draft heck Bijan Robinson has been mocked to the commanders as in mock drafted by the commanders he is talented no doubt, uh, he has the potential to be a great NFL running back. But should our commanders, given all that we know about the positional value of running back, really, truly be open to taking Bijan Robinson in the first round of the draft? Next segment, a special guest, a running back expert, in fact, Jeremy Popolars. Uh, he is a featured analyst, For FTN Fantasy. He is terrific at breaking down NFL draft prospects. He studies players both from an X's and O's perspective and a perspective of analytics. And he's going to talk to us about Bijan Robinson. Just how good is this guy? Should the commanders be open to taking this guy in the first round? Uh, But also, Jeremy is going to address the positional value of running back and where we are with that value. In the modern NFL. And Jeremy's going to discuss what the commanders currently have at running back in Brian Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson. The team already has one running back with the last name of Robinson. Does the team need a second running back with the last name of Robinson? To Bijan or not to Bijan? That is the question on this installment of the podcast. I know my answer. Uh, it is the same answer that my homie Steve Harvey gave many years ago. In fact, let's ask him right now. Steve, should the Commanders spend a first round pick on a running back, even one as gifted as Bijan Robinson?
0: Oh, hell
2: no! <laughs>
1: That's right, Stevie. You and I, we have spoken. Uh, also on the show, I will hit on the Capitals' penultimate game of their season, a 5-2 loss at the President's Trophy winning Boston Bruins on Tuesday night as the Bruins made NHL history. I'll tell you about that. But the bigger camp's issue that I want to get into with you, the job status of head coach Peter Lobulat, that status is said to be 50-50, according to Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic. What's going to happen? What should happen with Peter Laviolette as Caps head coach? I will talk Nationals. Uh, they late night on Tuesday night were the victims of a one-hit shutout, a 2 nothing loss at the Los Angeles Angels as the Nats got dominated by the Angels starting pitcher and also starting DH, the great Shohei Otani. And I have a proper Orioles segment for you. On a bonkers win on Tuesday evening, a 12-8 win over the Oakland A's at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The O's overcame a 7-3 fifth inning deficit and got a ridiculous performance from first baseman Ryan Mountaincastle. 9 RBI. He tied an Oriole single game regular season record with 9 RBI. 3-4 for with a grand slam, a three-run homer, an RBI single, and an RBI sack fly. The O's also got big games from left fielder Austin Hayes and catcher Adley Rutschman, Although pitcher Grayson Rodriguez did have some problems in his second major league regular season start. A lot to take in if you are an OS fan. You can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. Lots of tweets off Tuesday's show, episode 547, which included a conversation with Howard Gutman the former United States ambassador to Belgium, a big Commanders fan. Uh, He's good friends with and a strategic advisor for billionaire Mitchell Rails, who, of course, is a key part of the group being led by Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner Josh Harris to buy the Commanders. Uh, The ambassador was tremendous in talking about Rails and what we would have in him and Josh Harris as owners of the Commanders. Tweet from Robert O'Connor. Excellent insight. By Mr. Gutman. Uh, tweet from Keith Horton. Terrific pod with Ambassador Gutman. We need more Howard. <laughs> uh, tweet from Boonsta. I've always been all in on Bezos, but Mr. Gutman gets me pumped up for the Harris Rails group. I think it's a win-win if it comes down to those two groups. Tweet from JR. The Harris Rails magic group sounds too good to be true. We'll get Bezos or Stevie A or Dan. will somehow mess it all up. Tweet from Crabcakes and football. Mr. Gutman makes a very compelling pitch for the Harris Rails group. I heard him once before on Mitch Rails and had been intrigued after that conversation. Tuesday's show amplified those warm feelings, and I'm fully confident our team would be in good hands the sooner the better. Thank you for the tweets. You know what's funny? Uh, I also, with Howard Gutman, talked about the news on Monday morning of the Commanders and Washington, D.C. having reached a settlement agreement regarding one of D.C.'s two lawsuits against technically Pro Football Inc., uh, which is the official parent company of the Commanders. So the lawsuit had to do with season ticket deposits. Uh, This is a settlement agreement by which the team will pay a $425,000 fine to D.C. and will refund the remaining $200,000 in ticket deposits to fans of the team in D.C. And it's just so funny to me. We have become so desensitized to the controversies and scandals and investigations with our football team to where something like Washington, D.C. having sued the team barely registered. I mean, think about that. Washington, D.C. sued the football team. That settlement agreement that came out on Monday morning, the reaction was like, oh, yeah, that lawsuit okay, moving on, you know, we have become so used to the controversies and scandals and investigations that something like a lawsuit settlement agreement between the football team and the capital city of the country <laughs> was not that big of a deal. The abnormal has become normal to us. And so if nothing else, you would like to think that whoever ends up buying the team will prove to be an owner of with whom the abnormal gets back to being abnormal, and that a new, more normal normal sets in. The controversies and scandals and investigations and lawsuits and dysfunction and everything else, uh, the time has long since passed for those things to stop. But it's just amazing to me, like when you take a step back and you take stock and you really think about where we are with our team and all that has happened with our team, uh, it is amazing. A lawsuit settlement agreement between the capital city of the country and an NFL team, in theory, that's a big deal. But for us, that was just Monday, (laughs) you know, that's where we are. Well, no matter what day it is, uh, the day is a good day to get yourself some Shady Rays sunglasses because Shady Rays is offering a great deal to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the promo code ALGALDI. Shady Rays sunglasses. They look good. They feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses, no questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Here's a special offer for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund Within 30 days, there's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI.com. For 50% off, two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you have been thinking about getting new sunglasses, now is the time. And Shady Rays is the way. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off, two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Also, Shady Rays has done some great work, has donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Shady Rays, look good. Well, the first round of the 2023 NFL draft is on Thursday night, April 27th. Uh, The commanders have the number 16 overall pick in that 2023 draft. There are many players who have been talked about as potentially being taken by the commanders with that number 16 overall pick to say nothing of the prospect of the team trading down or trading up in the first round. But perhaps no potential selection for the commanders with that number 16 overall pick is more controversial than the potential selection of Texas running back Bijan Robinson. Uh, as you probably know, I'm a big believer in the draft philosophy of a best player available, aka BPA. Uh, you don't draft for need because needs are constantly changing and what you perceive as not being an area of need today can become an area of need tomorrow based on injury underperformance, etc. So with rare exception, an NFL team to me should abide by the draft philosophy of best player available. Now, the philosophy of best player available factors in positional value, you would never want to take the best punter in the draft over say the third best offensive tackle in the draft. And so where does that leave us with the position of running back? Uh, No position in the NFL, heck, maybe no position in sports, has been devalued more over the last, say, 15 years than running back. We all know the deal. So many good running backs have been drafted with non-first-round picks. So many big money contracts for running backs have turned out to be flops. And there are so many instances of a quality running back being unavailable, and then his backup comes in and does just fine. But what about this guy, B. John Robinson? The hype for him is out of control. Uh, the NFL next-gen stats model grades Robinson as a 96th percentile prospect, an elite prospect. And so with our commanders having not had a truly good offense since at least the 2017 season, and you certainly could argue since the 2016 season, and with the team now having Eric Bieniemy as its assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator, could it be... Might it be that our team should be open to the possibility of taking Bijan Robinson with the number 16 overall pick? Should the commanders be open to saying yes uh, to what to me is usually a big no-no, taking a running back in the first round of an NFL draft? I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Jeremy Popelars. Uh, He is a featured analyst for FTN Fantasy. He does a really good job of combining film watching and analytics into his evaluations. Uh, and he is a self-proclaimed running back enthusiast. So he is not a running back hater by any means. Uh, he is a man who knows the NFL well, but who studies and knows running backs at an especially high level. You know, I wanted as a guest, someone who could truly go in depth on Bijan Robinson, but also discuss where we are with running backs in the modern NFL, and where we are with the Commander's top two backs, Brian Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson. And Jeremy is that guy. You can follow Jeremy on Twitter at PopesFFH.
3: Hey, Jeremy, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm excited. You know, as you said, self-proclaimed. And uh, I love to talk about running backs. I think it's a, a, a great position. I know it's kind of one of those that is dying out kind of in the NFL eyes, we could argue, kind of leaning towards that running back by committee and kind of seems like some of those more succeeding teams kind of have lesser contracted running backs. But I think it's still a fun position to look at and watch and kind of, especially in the draft, see some of these kids coming out and just their abilities to to be a game breaker at that position.
1: Yeah. Well, before we talk, Bijan Robinson and the commanders, uh, tell us, if you would, about what you do. Uh, I know that you chart players, like you're not just reading a bunch of stats, uh, you're putting in some work.
3: Yeah, so I mean, I watch a lot of the games. Um, I go back through and rewatch them as the draft nears. Um, I try to cover as many running backs and just prospects in general, mostly geared towards fantasy with like the threads and stuff I put out there, or at least skill positions. It's not strictly fantasy, but like their skill position type of threads that are kind of just video clips and kind of just assessing how the players will succeed at the NFL level, which ultimately leads to fantasy. Obviously, like you said, I work for FTN fantasy, so a lot of my stuff is geared towards that. Um, but I do kind of have that niche for like liking to see if they can succeed at the NFL level, because that does lead to fantasy success. You know, what I mean it's still all tied in. And for me, I, I like to do that. I look at a lot of the advanced stats, stuff like that, whether we use pro football focus is one of the better ones for um college football advanced stats when it comes to stuff like missed tackles forced, etc um and then i also like to just obviously you know your base stats stuff like that but it's just kind of trying to make a perfect marriage as much as i can to what you see on film to what the numbers are because you'll see sometimes some players run some quick 40 times and you're like oh that guy's got to be fast well you turn on the tape and you watch him and he doesn't play that fast because sometimes it's a whether it's processing or just the offensive line or it's Something that he's doing that it doesn't allow him to play at, say, that 4 4 speed that he runs versus a guy that might run a 4 5 that looks like he runs a 4 4 on tape. So I feel like there's a, a good way to, to kind of marriage those two things together versus really leaning heavily on either side. You
1: mentioned the prospect threads that you put out. Uh, you on Monday morning on Twitter put out a prospect thread on Bijan Robinson. So he is fresh in your mind. Uh, let's start with this. Is he the truly special running back prospect who he is being made out to be?
3: I think so. I think with Bijan, he is arguably, like you have said, a lot of people have made it out to be that he is one of the better prospects since Saquon Barkley. And I would agree 100% with that. I think that him and Barkley as a prospect coming out are very similar. Um, there's some things that Bijan does a little better than what Barkley did There's some things Barkley did better than what Bijan did as far as entering the NFL. But Bijan is definitely the best prospect we've seen since Barkley. I think that he has a great ability with his size and speed combination, as well as, like, his speed is also quick. Like, he does very well laterally. He does very well off schedule, we'll say, off of a run, you know, opposed to hitting the the direct hole he's supposed to hit or the left side of the line, he does very well at finding those holes on the cutback type of stuff, as well as once he's in the hole, being able to laterally make guys miss and are just sometimes you watch it and you go, wow, like, how did he just do that? So Bijan gives you a lot of those wow moments at the collegiate level. And that's something that you'd like to see. And that's what makes these guys kind of truly special versus guys that just are able to hit a hole and run 40 yards. Yeah, it looks fun on tape, but if you're not being forced to do much, you know, A lot of collegiate athletes can kind of run for 30, 40 yards if they're given real good blocking, where Bijan kind of gave us everything we wanted to see. He gave us some of those plays, as well as plays where he just created out of pretty much nothing. So for me, I think Bijan is completely and totally worth the hype. He may be getting a little bit overhyped, but I don't think that he's going to be a complete disappointment. He might disappoint some if they think that he's going to come in and be like, you know, a 1,500-yard guy in year one. And it could happen. I'm not going to say it won't, but it really depends on probably where he lands and stuff like that as far as his opportunity share goes. But he's a guy that's definitely going to probably take over the backfield by midseason, in my opinion, no matter where he goes.
1: Is there anything about Bijan Robinson as a prospect that is cause for concern that makes you wonder if he'll be a bust, or is Bijan
3: bust-proof? I would say, I mean... Overall, I mean, he was asked to do a lot more than some like, college kids were in the passing game. I think that that's something that isn't too concerning, but he wasn't asked necessarily, and I don't think he will at the NFL level, but he didn't, wasn't asked to run like a ton of complicated routes. He ran kind of simpler routes, so you could argue that maybe there's a little bit. As well as he was such a playmaker, he wasn't asked to pass block a lot. He wasn't in on third downs if you watch a lot of Texas games. Um, because there's another athlete coming out that's very good in Roshan Johnson. And Roshan Johnson is an absolute tank when it came to pass blocking and being there on third downs. So he drew a lot of third down snaps in comparison to Bijan Robinson. So we haven't seen a ton from Robinson as far as a pass blocking running back goes. But he's so talented that I think no matter where team he goes to, you'll see a lot of two running back sets possibly on third down, or maybe they leave the tight end in and leak him out as far as the pass blocking protection goes and use him more as a weapon on that third down. But we don't see a lot of that from him. So, I mean, you could argue that maybe he'll get some of that Antonio Gibson, which you guys are familiar with, treatment as far as, like, maybe not seeing as much work because he's not successful in, in the pass blocking game. So that's a little bit of a concern as well as sometimes there's some plays and it's far and few in between, but sometimes he doesn't necessarily run with the pad level behind him. You know, like sometimes you see him get stood up here and there. Usually it happens when he kind of strings a couple moves together by the time that second tackler gets there to third tackler, they're kind of almost driving backwards at times. It's not often, like I said, it's something that we're just really splitting pairs here just because he is so good. But I would say maybe that and maybe sometimes he's he has the ability of a quick acceleration. So you'll see sometimes he does kind of come to a complete stop. And that works really well at the collegiate level, because not every athlete is as good as they are at the NFL level. So that could be something that we see a little bit. Um, That was a similar knock to Barkley, because these guys are so talented at the collegiate level that they're able to do that, lean heavily on their athleticism and their abilities to kind of make plays out of nothing where at the NFL level, you know, you're getting linebackers, DBs that are just as fast or just as talented. And it kind of causes them to not necessarily be able to pick up those easy runs because they're looking to break the 50 yarder. Now, again, we're splitting pairs. We saw Barkley come in with kind of, like I said, some of the same knocks as far as like that start, stop kind of a little bit over the happy feet style. And like Barkley came in and was electric in year one. So, we're really splitting hairs here, so I don't think that they're going to be that, but those would be maybe my causes for concern when it comes to B. John Robinson.
1: We're talking with Jeremy Popolars, featured analyst for FTN Fantasy, about Texas running back Bijan Robinson and whether the commanders should be open to taking him with their number 16 overall pick in the 2023 NFL Draft. All right, so we have established that Bijan Robinson is a special prospect. Uh, Now to the issue of the positional value of running back and whether a team in today's NFL should spend a first-round pick on a back. What say you?
3: I always think that the first-round running backs are more so a luxury pick. And I think that it comes down to a team that maybe normally late in the draft. You know, We saw it with the Chiefs when they took CEH. We saw it with the Steelers with Najee Harris, the Jags with ETN. A lot of those are either they have an extra first-round pick or it's kind of a team that is fairly close to kind of being a real, true Super Bowl contender and wants to get a playmaker who is – cap friendly you know like the the cost of a rookie is always better you know the nfl at this point we talked about it and it's always all over there as far as hey let's get these teams let's get a rookie quarterback let's get them on a cheap deal surround them with a ton of talent and that's how we can make a super bowl push we're seeing it you know the bills did it the Bengals did it the chiefs did it the eagles are doing it currently with hurts like that's kind of the mold and it can be said the same way with the running back position you know like We've seen, I don't remember, it, it was a while back now, but I do remember seeing somebody had posted something on Twitter a while back of just saying like the last Super Bowl winners, I don't even think have had a running back that was getting paid over like $2 million on their yearly base cap hit salary. So it's kind of seems like that devaluation is there because it seems like that's the successful mold is, you know, getting that quarterback, getting some playmakers and not necessarily having to pay these running backs because you're leaning on your quarterback. So it's a hard thing to push towards to take one in the first round. But I don't hate it when it's a luxury pick. Like, for example, I think the Eagles will be looking for one this year. You know, the Eagles are a pretty well rounded team. They were very close last season. And you could argue that maybe with Dijon Robinson, for example, they could have possibly taken the Super Bowl home. And so in that instance, yes, I don't hate it. But I'm not sold on them being a top 10 pick. You know what I mean? I'm kind of past that. Like Barkley would be the last one that I can remember that was a top 10 pick. And I don't know if Bijan... I think Bijan may get that this year. But unless they're special to the point of that we're talking about here today with Bijan or the Saquon Barkleys or the Christian McCaffreys, like those guys are worth it. But for example, I think like Najee Harris, Trez, ETN, um, CEH, like those guys were very well drafted in their position, you know, obviously CEH didn't work out, but like those guys were worth the place that they were taking. You know what I mean? Like if it's a special running back prospect, sure. Take that reach, you know, top 15. But if we're just talking the best running back in that draft and it's not like a generational type running back, then I don't know if it's really worth that first round pick because like you said, we see it time and time again, where the second round really seems to be that key spot for the running back.
1: Would you say that, generally speaking, how a running back does in the NFL is as much about and maybe even most about his offensive line, that as long as the back is at a certain level of ability, the back can do well if the offensive line is good?
3: I think that's a really good point, and I think it's something that goes underrated, I would say. And we've seen it, you know, like Barkley has been a great running back, and He went into the Giants and not having had the best offensive line play, and he's kind of struggled from time to time. Obviously, he had an ACL injury and other injuries along with that, but we've seen him struggle at times. You know, We've seen Henry struggle at times when he isn't getting the blocking. So, yes, there are these special guys who can make plays happen, but it's much harder when the offensive line isn't there. And then we have seen guys who are, we'll say, subpar athletes to the NFL standards. Um, Most example, obviously, I'm a Bills fan. So for me, it's easy to go to like Devin Singletary, you know, an under like athletic type of player. That's not great, but I mean, he was serviceable. He did well. I mean, I, I wouldn't say he was knocking everybody's boots down, but like he was usable. He was viable. He stepped in. They didn't have the best offensive line play, but they got the job done just because of a pure systematic scheme. We'll say the same with Isaiah Pacheco and the Chiefs this past season. You know, Isaiah Pacheco, a late round draft pick, had his issues with vision, had his issues just in general as a runner, and he kind of cleaned that up a little bit and at the NFL level. But the Chiefs were just so explosive and he faced a lot of light boxes that he was successful. So I think they go hand in hand. And I do think you could argue that, yes, there is a certain level that these running backs have to be at. But I don't think that you need to be a Hall of Fame running back if your offensive line is a better offensive line. You know, and it's it's hard to argue because some of these offensive lines, I think the, my best example would be maybe the Rams before they kind of started to fade out a little bit where they kind of could plug in, you know, Daryl Williams. They plugged in Cam Akers, Sony Michelle and had a lot of success. Um, maybe the 49ers before they got McCaffrey. Same thing. You know, we're kind of seeing where that and right now maybe the Dolphins, you know, where they're kind of rotating through those types of mid-level running backs and still finding success in the run game as opposed to going after, you know, like a workhorse like Jacobs or Austin Eckler or Barkley or Jonathan Taylor. And they're making it work. So I think it can work both ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Uh, So to tie all of this into the commanders, uh, they are not a Super Bowl contender. Uh, They do not have the luxury of making a Luxury selection with their first round pick in the 2023 draft. Uh, Washington has spent a third round pick in two of the last three drafts on running backs uh, Antonio Gibson in 2020 and Brian Robinson Jr. in 2022. I got a kick out of this. You, in a tweet on April 2nd, noted that 2022 Bijan Robinson is number two out of all of the college running backs who you have charted over the last four years in missed tackles forced per attempt. Number one. Is Antonio Gibson with what he did for Memphis in the 2019 season? Uh, what do you make of what the Commanders currently have at running back in Brian Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson?
3: Yeah, I think the, the hard thing with Gibson is is like so that stat is slightly misleading. I do think that Gibson is good, but ultimately it came down to the fact that Gibson had only seen you know 33 carries as a collegiate runner in Memphis. In his two years so he really only had like 16 forced missed tackles so it kind of allowed him to have a high per miss tackle per carry percentage and he was really kind of an outlier at 0.48 but then Bijan and javante and then three other guys in this class and duane mcbride roshan johnson and kenny mack and tosh were all at 3.5 or higher so it is a little bit misleading with gibson But to tie it all in, I do think that Gibson is a very talented playmaker, and that's where I'm going to put him at. I do think he struggles as a pass blocker, and that we moved into a little bit earlier. That I think that's part of the reason that they don't necessarily trust him. He's also had some fumble issues, and fumbling at the NFL level is like a big no-no. At the college level, a little bit easier to kind of overcome and get put back in the game. The NFL level, they don't like fumbles at all. So you, you fumble, and it's usually a bad situation for you for the game. So that doesn't help him. Uh, as well as I feel like sometimes he falls into that category of trying to make too much of what's there. Sometimes he doesn't necessarily get those tough yardage. Where I think Brian Robinson was a little bit more of what they wanted as far as like uh I'm gonna tell you to hit the A gap, hit it and get me what our offensive line gets us, versus Gibson who's looking to kind of bounce it or try and hit that, but he's like, Oh, I think I can get to say the B gap and put this to 30 yards instead of a four yard run so I think they're a little bit different in that aspect and I think Gibson has a little bit more of that pass catching ability than Robinson and I think that they're kind of just trying to go with that running back by committee and I I really like Gibson I just don't know how much and it feels like everything that the commanders are doing that they don't necessarily love Antonio Gibson And I would expect to see Antonio Gibson in a little bit more of a limited role in 2023 for you guys, as opposed to Brian Robinson, who I think gets a little bit more run just because I feel like they liked Brian Robinson. And obviously we had heard about the unfortunate injury that he had sustained off the field. And that kind of really derailed what could have been a really big rookie season for him because they were already ready to kind of give him the reins week one prior to that injury. And then Gibson was able to kind of work his way back in due to that injury and then we saw once Robinson came back that kind of leaned a little bit more to Robinson than Gibson and I don't think that's a bad thing I think you can get that job done with two running backs I think you see that a lot at the level now if you're good at two different things the struggle is the pass blocking for Gibson that the only way to find him on the field and get that passing work would be kind of as like a second running back or kind of line up in the slot which he can do I mean he played a lot of receiver at Memphis as well so I think they might use him more as kind of one of those, not necessarily like a gadget player, but a playmaker who's versatile in alignments. And you might see that more from Gibson this season, I think, more so than your straight up lined up halfback.
1: If ever Antonio Gibson's skill set is going to be maximized, and he is going into the fourth and final season of his rookie contract, uh, you would think that the maximizing of the Gibson skill set would happen uh, with Eric Bienemi running. The commanders' offense. Terrific insight. Jeremy Popelars, featured analyst for FTN Fantasy, a man who knows running backs well. Jeremy, thanks a lot for your time.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. And uh, I can say, go, Commanders. You know, the Bills are in the AFC. Maybe we'll meet in the uh, Super Bowl. I'll go with that. That would be I... lovely.
1: The two teams, as you know, met in a Super Bowl once before. So we'd love to see that again.
3: They did. I think it didn't go so good for my business. So. <laughs> Let's. Although I'm sure you want it to go the same way, I, I would prefer to go the other way this
1: time. <laughs> exactly. You know? But if both of our teams make it to the Super Bowl, I think that we can each take at least some satisfaction in that. Thanks a lot.
3: Thank you, and I appreciate you having me on.
1: All right, good stuff from Jeremy Popolars. You know, no matter where you stand on the commanders drafting Bijan Robinson, there's no doubt that there is something quite nice about having a young, dynamic running back, right? Someone who you know will deliver when given the ball, just like the law firm of Paulson and Nace. If Paulson and Nace was a running back, uh, it would be 1982 John Riggins uh, or 2005 Clinton Portis or 2012 Alfred Morris. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Ace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611, and when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Ace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Ace fights for victims of all kinds of situations, including victims of errors made during diagnosis during surgery or with medication, victims of injuries caused by dangerous medications or medical devices, as well as defective auto parts, victims of accidents involving cars, trucks, bikes, or motorcycles, victims of deceptive trade practices and false advertising, heck, victims of shady lawyers. If your attorney acts in bad faith, is unethical in his or her counsel, or is negligent in his or her work, you could have a claim for legal malpractice, Paulson and Ace has represented corporate clients throughout the region. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Ace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Ace and schedule a no obligation appointment. Call 202 902 7611. That's 202 902 7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Ace. That Al Sencha. sent you. You can also visit Paulson That's PaulsonAndace.com. But don't forget to tell Paulson and Ace that Al Sencha. sent you. Paulson and Ace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Ace. Well, the Capitals now have just one game left in their season, Uh, home to the New Jersey Devils, Thursday night at 7. The Caps on Tuesday night played their final road game of the season. They lost. Uh, They fell to 35-37-9, a 5-2 loss at the President's Trophy-winning Boston Bruins, who made NHL history. Uh, The Bruins, with this win, set a new NHL single-season, regular-season points record, hundred. 33 points. Now, uh, things are different now in the NHL as compared to yesteryear. Uh, a team now gets a point for an overtime loss and for a shootout loss. So the Bruins surpassed the 1976-1977 Montreal Canadiens, who in that regular season went 68-12. and 68-12, with the 12 standing for ties. So there is a difference between getting a point for a non-regulation loss and not getting a point for a non-regulation loss. Uh, But still, the Bruins are an absolute powerhouse. And former Caps winger Garnett Hathaway, uh, he had one of the Bruins' five goals in this game. The Caps on Tuesday night, again, were without a lot of key players. Uh, Winger Alex Ovechkin did not play for a third consecutive game due to an upper body injury. Also remaining out for the Caps center, Nick Dowd, due to an upper body injury. Uh, winger T.J. Oshie, due to an upper body injury he's done for the season. Uh, winger Anthony Mantha, due to a lower body injury. Defenseman Trevor Van Riemsdyk, due to an upper body injury. Uh, wingers Connor Brown and Carl Hagelin remain out. And the Caps, during the game, lost their goaltender. Uh, Charlie Lindgren was the Caps' starting goaltender. He stopped 33 of the 36 shots on goal that he faced, including at one point in the third period, losing his blocker and making a save with his right forearm while his right hand was exposed. Uh, That was some save by Lindgren, but he left the game in the third period due to an injury. And so Darcy Kemper came into the game and he stopped six of the seven shots on goal that he faced. The Caps once again got demolished in the puck possession battle. Uh, The Caps, as their season is ending, are routinely getting wrecked in puck possession battles, this is one of those things that does speak to the Caps uh, potentially having uh, relaxed their effort as the season has gone on. Although the Caps at times have played hard too. I mean, it's not just a blanket thing that you could say, hey, the Caps have quit. Like, no, it's not as simple as that. But the Caps on Tuesday night for natural stat trick, had just 43 five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins 69, including just five five-on-five high-danger shot attempts. To the Bruins 14. What's always tough, though, with something like this is, well, was that discrepancy due to a lack of effort by the Caps? Or was that discrepancy due to just the Caps not being that good? I mean, again, the Bruins just set a record for the most points by an NHL team in a regular season. Uh, some positives for the Caps. Winger Tom Wilson had a third period power play goal and a team high tying six shots on goal. He did also have another penalty, a second period roughing minor. Tom Wilson now has scored a goal in each of the Caps' last three games, but he also now has totaled a staggering 32 penalty minutes over the Caps' Last five games, center uh, Dylan Strome on Tuesday night did not score a goal for the first time in five games. Although he did have the primary assist on the Tom Wilson power play goal, and Strome did have a game high four takeaways. Although he also went a putrid two and fifteen on face offs. But the most significant Caps item on Tuesday to me was not anything with this game. Uh, the most significant Caps item on Tuesday to me was what a friend of this podcast, uh, Caps insider Tariq El-Bashir of The Athletic, reported. Uh, Tariq on Tuesday morning reported that whether the Caps will retain Peter Laviolette as head coach is, quote, 50-50 right now, end quote, uh, as it was put to Tariq. Uh, Tariq also reported that, quote, Laviolette is believed to still have the support of some key veterans. Management and ownership, meantime, are said to be mulling the impact all of the injuries have had over the last season plus, end quote. Uh, We know that the camps are attempting a retool as opposed to a rebuild. Uh, That certainly was the thinking with their sell-off prior to the March 3rd NHL trade deadline. But whether the retool should move forward with Peter Laviolette as Caps head coach is tricky. This is Laviolette's third season as Caps head coach. Uh unlike the Wizards, uh, the Caps do have a legitimate excuse of injury for this season and also dealt with a lot in the way of injury last season in which the Caps did make the Stanley Cup playoffs. But when we talk about the reasons for why the Caps are missing the Stanley Cup playoffs this season for the first time in 9 seasons, I don't think that it's wrong to bring up injuries. Uh maybe even as the number one reason. I mean, how about this? Going into Monday night's 5-2 win over the New York Islanders at Capital One Arena, the Caps had their most man games lost in a regular season since the 1998-1999 regular season. Think about that. So any fair, objective evaluation of Peter Laviolette as Caps head coach absolutely has to factor in the injuries. And I think that it's telling that, at least according to Tariq El Bashir, quote, Laviolette is believed to still have the support of some key veterans, end quote. However, uh, Peter Laviolette's contract is ending with this season. Uh, the caps with Laviolette as head coach have gotten worse each season in terms of regular season points percentage. Uh, the caps in each of Laviolette's first two seasons as caps head coach were eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the Caps, with LaViolette as head coach, have not done a good enough job of developing younger players. And in fact, at times, have turned off younger players. Uh, See defenseman Jonas Siegenthaler, who asked to be traded. The Caps traded him to the New Jersey Devils in April 2021. And Siegenthaler has blossomed with the Devils. If the Caps are going to get away with a retool as opposed to a rebuild, They need to get better at developing younger players. And that, of course, includes being more willing to play younger players. And if this is an issue with Laviolette, uh, then that is a problem. But exactly like how anti playing younger players he is, is hard to say. But the Caps came into this NHL season as a very old team. I mentioned the injuries. At least some of that is due to the age of the team, right? Uh, The team needs to get younger in order to get better. And a big decision for the man who runs Capitals hockey operations, the senior vice president and general manager, Brian McClellan, is whether Peter Laviolette is the right head coach
3: for this movement to get younger.
1: Well, there may be no team in major professional sports that has underachieved more over the last 15 years. Then the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, The team has spent a ton of money on players. The team has some of the best players in baseball. (laughs) And yet the team has made the playoffs just once over the last 13 seasons. But still, the team does have some of the best players in baseball, including starting pitcher slash designated hitter Shohei Otani, the best starting pitcher hitter combo in the majors since the greatest player in baseball history, Babe Ruth, and the Nationals late night on Tuesday night uh, got otanied. Uh a 2 0 loss at the Angels in Game Two of a three-game series. The Nats fell to four and eight. The Nats had one hit the entire game. Uh, the Nats got shut out. They totaled just one hit. Did work six walks, but the bats overall done dirty by the Angels' starting pitcher Shohei Ohtani, who tossed seven scoreless innings with six strikeouts, although he did issue five walks. But the Nats' lone hit in the game was by C.J. Abrams. Uh, He is the Nats' starting shortstop and number 8 batter, one for four with a double. Uh, Abrams, in the top of the fourth, had a two-out first-pitch double to right field, but that was it. No other hits for the Nats in the game. out uh, Ruiz as an Nats' starting catcher and number five batter went over to, with two walks, but yeah, not much to talk about with the Nats' offense, which had been better over the last four games of having been really bad over the team's first seven games of this regular season. Uh, the NAT starting pitcher late night on Tuesday night was Josiah Gray. He overall was good for a second consecutive start off his disastrous first start of this regular season. 7-1 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on April 1st. Five runs in five innings. He gave up three home runs. But then Gray in a one nothing loss at the Colorado Rockies last Thursday was good. One run in six innings with six strikeouts. And Gray in this loss... At the Angels late night on Tuesday night, two runs in five and two-thirds innings. Uh, He gave up just four hits, a solo homer and three singles. He did issue two walks and two hit-by pitches. And he, over his five and two-thirds innings, did throw 103 pitches, uh, just 55 strikes, versus 38 balls. Uh, Gray in the bottom of the fourth, allowed a run on back-to-back hit-by-pitches of Taylor Ward and Mike Trout. An opposite field single by Shohei Otani to left field to load the bases, and an RBI sack fly by Xnat Anthony Rendon, and Gray during that Rendon plate appearance threw a pitch that went to the backstop, but luckily ricocheted right back to the Nats catcher, Kbert Ruiz. Uh, Gray in the bottom of the six, allowed a run on a leadoff homer by Logan Ohappy on a bomb to left field. Oh, the homer went a projected 414 feet per stat cast. Uh, Gray then gave up a full count infield single to Taylor Ward on a grounder uh, that actually was botched by the Nats' third baseman, Jamer Candelario. And Gray then issued back-to-back two-out walks of Anthony Rendon and Hunter Renfro, uh, causing the Nats' manager, Davey Martinez, to pull Gray from the game. So Gray did have some control issues in the game, but overall, the run prevention was there. Two runs in five and two-thirds innings. Uh, the Nats' bullpen late night on Tuesday night came through. Uh, two Nats relievers combined for two and a third scoreless innings with Four strikeouts. Thaddeus Ward. Uh, he tossed one and two thirds scoreless innings with two strikeouts. Came through in a big spot. He came into the game in the bottom of the sixth with the bases loaded, two outs, and the Nats down two nothing. And he struck out Luis Renjifo on five pitches. Struck him out looking for the third out. And Anthony Bonda, uh, in what ended up being a scoreless spot of the eighth for the Angels, did issue two walks and a wild pitch, but also had two strikeouts. So it wasn't always pretty. But the Nats pitching in this game. Got the job done. The hitting was the problem, and the hitting was a problem in no small part due to Shohei Ohtani. Uh, Still no Luis Garcia for the Nats. He was available to pinch hit, but he did not play in this game. He still has not played in a game since leaving The 10-5 win at the Rockies last Friday night due to a hamstring issue. Uh, Also, the Nats on Tuesday placed infielder-outfielder Ildamaro Vargas on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to April 10th uh, with a left shoulder strain. He suffered that in the 7-6 loss at the Rockies on Sunday. The Nats recalled infielder Jeter Downs from AAA Rochester. But with Garcia nursing the hamstring and Vargas nursing the shoulder, the Nats have actually been down uh, their top two second baseman. I say that with a question mark because we have seen a good bit of Michael Chavis at second base, but certainly the Nats top second baseman at Luis Garcia and a very versatile player in Ildamaro Vargas. But hopefully Garcia is back soon. Game three for the Nats at the Angels is on Wednesday afternoon at 4.07. Mackenzie Gore Will be the Nats starting pitcher. And the Nats, if they win this game, will conclude a four and three trip out west. Not bad. Well, what a wild win for the Orioles on Tuesday evening. In what already has been a wild regular season, we got another wild game. On Tuesday evening, the O's improved to 6-5 and with a 12-8 win over the Oakland A's at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Game 2 of a four-game series as the O's overcame a 7-3 fifth-inning deficit. The Birds rallied, and the Birds, Joe Angel, were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in
2: the win column.
1: Yes, Joe, the win column. Uh, Man, (laughs) the O's have played some whacked-out games so far. Uh, This game on Tuesday evening, the latest whacked-out affair, and it featured an amazing performance by Ryan Mountcastle. Ryan Mountcastle on Tuesday evening, as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter, had nine RBI. Yes, nine runs batted in. Uh, Mountcastle became just the third Orioles player ever with a regular season game in which he had at least nine RBI. Uh, He joined Eddie Murray, who had his nine RBI regular season game on August 26th, 1985, and joined Jim Gentile, who had his nine RBI regular season game on May 9, 1961. Uh, Mountcastle on Tuesday evening, three for four with a grand slam, a three-run homer, an RBI single, and an RBI sack fly, and the two homers were tremendous. Uh, Mount Castle in an Orioles three-run fifth, a three-run homer to center field to cut the Orioles deficit to 7-6. The homer went a projected 417 feet per stat cast, and then Mount Castle in an Orioles five-run seventh, a two-out grand slam to deep left field for a 12-7 Orioles lead. The homer went a projected 4 hundred fifty six feet per stat cast this was literally a grand slam this was the grandest of grand slams a four hundred fifty six foot blast for a grand slam what a game for ryan mountcastle here was O's manager brandon hyde during his postgame press conference on tuesday night
2: on mountcastle you know he swung the bats really well in spring training and looked like, for me, um, was a much more mature hitter this spring, and he's carried it into the season. Um, the power he has is incredible, and he's got great bat-to-ball skills. with balls in the strike zone are just off, and we make a mistake, and, he, and he's ready to hit. And uh, he's off to a great start this year. Love the confidence he's playing with right now, and, and uh, what a special night for him.
1: Yes, it was. Ryan Mountcastle now for this regular season, number one in the majors in RBI with 18. But as great as Mountcastle was on Tuesday evening, he was not the only Oriole who hit well. Austin Hayes had a big game. Uh, he is the Orioles' starting left fielder and number one batter. Four for five with a solo homer, a double, an RBI single, and two other singles. Uh, Hayes ended Orioles' one-run sixth, a one-out solo homer, over the Great Wall of Baltimore (laughs) in left field to tie the game at seven. And Adley Rutschman, another impressive game. He got on base four times, as did Austin Hayes. But Rutschman, as the Orioles' starting catcher and number two batter, two for three with a double, a single, and two walks. Uh, the O's for the game had 12 runs on 12 hits and six walks. Uh, not too shabby. And it's a good thing that the O's hit well, because they certainly did not pitch well. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez, Rod, he did struggle in his second Major League regular season start. Uh, Rodriguez on Tuesday evening, five runs in four and a third innings. He gave up six hits, all of which were singles, uh, but he also issued four walks. He did record Six strikeouts, but the walks and the strikeouts really drove up his pitch count. Grayson Rodriguez over his mere four and to third innings through 99 pitches. Uh, the O's on April 5th recalled Grayson Rodriguez from Triple A North Bookkeeper. MLB Pipeline is the number five prospect in baseball and the number two pitching prospect in baseball. So obviously, how he does in these starts at the Major League level matters a lot. Uh, He and his Major League regular season debut was solid. 5-2 loss at the Texas Rangers last Wednesday afternoon, April 5th. Two runs in five innings, five strikeouts. He retired 13 of the final 15 batters he faced. But uh, Grayrod on Tuesday evening, not as good. Although, in fairness to Rodriguez, the final three runs that were charged to him came with reliever Austin Voth pitching. Uh, Voth, in a five-run ace fifth, gave up a one-out, three-run homer by Shea Langoliers over the Great Wall of Baltimore in left field uh, for a 7-3 A's lead. Austin Voth is struggling. The former national, Austin Voth, is struggling. Uh, he now has given up a home run in each of his four appearances in this regular season. But this was Brandon Hyde during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night. on Grayson Rodriguez, and then you'll hear two follow-up exchanges, and make sure that you pay close attention to the last exchange
2: you know for me I, I thought he had better stuff than he did in Texas I, I thought the fastball had a ton of life um, he was throwing 97 98 uh, I thought the slider got better as the outing went along I thought he made some mistakes 0-2 some young pitcher mistakes got beat three times 0-2 with balls with where he has the leverage and he could do. Um, hopefully he learns from that you know there's, there's Guys throwing ninety-eight with a, with a good slider and a, and a really good changeup, There's 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 places to go when you're ahead in the count to to get an easy out or to get a punch out. And he, he, a little tough time doing that tonight. But uh, you know, for me, the the stuff was better tonight. How
0: valuable is an experience like tonight in learning to do that and, and getting those experiences at the major league level?
2: Well, our, a lot of our guys have. That's what they're do, going. That's what they've gone through the last couple years. Is uh, and we haven't had a, a real veteran club the last few years, and these guys are all you. you, you know, you're seeing guys start to mature, and start, guys start to, uh, you know, get games under their belt, and to to be better baseball players. And and you know, Grayson's just starting, and so he's going to make mistakes, but he's got a really good arm. We, and we, uh, you know, really excited about him going forward.
1: Is he going to get another start? Yeah. All right, so Grayson Rodriguez is remaining in the Orioles rotation. Uh, that's good news. You know, the belief is that the guy who he replaced in the rotation, Kyle Bradish, isn't going to be out for long. Uh, the O's on April fifth put Bradish on the 15-day injured list, retroactive to April fourth, with a right foot contusion. So who knows? Maybe the O's will go with a six-man rotation when Bradish is back. Game three for the O's against the A's at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday evening at 6:35. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday's show, episode 549, will feature plenty on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. The Nats are at the Los Angeles Angels on Wednesday afternoon at 4.07 to conclude a three-game series. The O's are home to the Oakland A's on Wednesday evening at 6.35 for game three of a four-game series. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and i will talk to you on Thursday.
2: Ah, oh, hell no!